Well, I'm thankful for the privilege of being able to open the Word with you all again this morning. Um, I trust that you had a blessed time together this Thursday for Thanksgiving, being able to celebrate God's blessings in your life and give thanks over the past year of those many things. Um, Last time I was with you, I shared with you how often we get distracted in in our digital age, how how, how for myself um, that I often start making much of other things instead of making much of Christ. And I spoke how Christ must be our all-consuming endeavor and treasure and prize, the one in whom we should run after and press on into knowing daily. All of that is really foundational to what we're going to speak about today. All of what we're talking about today, I want to build from that foundation. So don't ignore what we talked about before, the message I I preached to you before. But the question I want to start with and I want us to ponder this morning is this. What do you think the priorities of Christians should be? What do you think the priorities of Christians should be? If you are making a list of things to do today, this year, or life goals, what are the list toppers? What are the top one, two, and three that you have? You know, my to-do list, I make a lot of to-do lists. Um, That's sort of how I organize myself is writing things down on paper. If I don't write it down, I won't remember it. It looks nice and neat and clean in the beginning. I've got this nice little note card. But as the week goes on, as the day draws near for me to fulfill that, that task, there's often appendages and additions that just convolutes that paper and it's no longer neat, nice, and clean. Because there's lots of other things competing for priority in my life. Just like me, I'm sure that you have many things competing for priority in your life. Things that demand your attention. Do you guys remember the bracelets back in the early 2000s that, I don't know why they became popular, but they became popular, that WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? Have you ever asked yourself that question, like genuinely? What would Jesus want us to do? If you could clean the slate of your life, If you could push reset and start over, start from scratch, and ask Jesus, what next, Lord? What would would he say? Well, I think the text that we're going to look at this morning together today, we find the disciples asking the same question, a very similar question. They had been called to follow Jesus, and had given their undivided attention to Jesus, him for three years, leaving job and everything to know him and to learn from him and to grow as followers of Christ. And they thought he was going to be the king to break the Roman rule, the oppression that they felt, to liberate them. But it was in these last days that Jesus, in whom they loved, had been crucified. All of their hopes and futures were shattered. They were fearful, grieved, distraught, I can't imagine the anxiety or the struggle that they would have faced or felt in those moments preceding the crucifixion. It was a forced reset of plans, forced change of agenda for the disciples. I want us to do the same thing today. I know that on this side of redemption history, we have a lot more knowledge and information now, and we see things more clearly than they did, but if you have been born again, if you've been given new life, new purpose in Christ, whether it's been just a few weeks or months, or it's been years and years and years, clear your mental to-dos this morning, and let's ask the Lord together, what 
now? What next? Jesus answers this question for his disciples in this text, and I believe he answers this question for us, even today. If you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. I'll be preaching from a timeless passage, which I'm sure all of you know by heart. Matthew 28. We're going to look at verse 16 through 20 together. Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When, he saw, when they saw him, they worshipped. Some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Before we go forward, let me pray. Father, thankful to be again with your people, to be able to worship you, to give you glory. I know that all of our life is directed towards worship, especially today, Lord. We ask that you would help us to see your beauty and glory in your word, that you would encourage us, that you would embolden us, that you would compel us to be about the priorities in which you have set. Lord Jesus, speak through me as your servant. I'm nothing more. Lord, make your word come alive to us. May your spirit be at work in each of our hearts that we would take your word and that we would hide it, that it would grow in us and bear fruit as it's intended to do, as you promised it would do. Lord, stir us up this morning. Make our affections for Christ grow. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So Jesus, Jesus answers this question for us about priority. Here in this text, what do, we, what do we do now that we are in Christ? There is not a clear picture, I don't think, in all of Scripture that makes this priority plain as it does in Matthew 28, what we often call the Great Commission. Jesus gives this priority to his church, to his disciples, as the last words before he ascends into heaven, departing from them. We must make it our priority to make disciples. Making disciples must be the church's priority and therefore must be your priority. If you are born again, if you are a disciple of Jesus, a member of the body of Christ, the church. But as you look at your life or the lives of your brothers and sisters, is the ambition that hits the top of the charts of your daily to-do list, of your yearly goals, of your lifelong ambition, is that making disciples? Is If it's not the case, if you, if you look at your life and you look at those around you and you realize that's really not my priority, what is it that causes you or keeps you from doing this? Is it fear? Is it fear of others or, or fear of your own inadequacies? Is it laziness or apathy? Maybe you just don't care or not as concerned about this priority. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe you're too busy to make these necessary changes to be intentional with making disciples. Whatever it might be, I think there's 
help for us today in this struggle to prioritize that which Jesus commands us to prioritize. There are four realities in this text I want us to look at, four encouragements that will hang the meat of this sermon on this morning um, as we look at realigning our priorities to Christ's will for us. And then there's two implications that I want to bring out at the end that will be hopefully practical help for us as we think about what do we do now? What do we do with this? So, so just so you don't, for those who are note takers, that you could see all of those priorities are those, those four points up front. Here they are. First, the person of Christ compels us to make disciples. Second, the power of Christ emboldens us to make disciples. Third, it's the prescription of Christ that commands us to make disciples. And last, it's the presence of Christ that encourages us to make disciples. So with those four things in mind, we'll go through, let's look at the greater context first as we dig into to Matthew chapter 8, the greater context of Matthew's gospel. As we think about it from beginning to end to place this in its right context, Matthew chapters 1 through 2, Matthew begins and he sets the stage of who Jesus is, making connections for us as to the fulfillment of prophecy in Christ. He, he connects it in two ways. He connects to Abraham and he connects to David. Jesus is the seed in which will bring the blessing to the nations through Abraham, from Abraham. And Jesus is the one, the eternal son, who's going to sit on the throne that will never be dethroned. This is the eternal seed of David. Chapters 4 through 9, Matthew makes it clear Jesus begins his ministry calling disciples to follow him, to meet, and he immediately begins teaching them about the kingdom of God and revealing to, to them the inbreaking power of the kingdom of God through himself into the world. Chapter 10, Jesus teaches the 12 how to teach and how to heal, having them do as he did. Literally, following in his steps, heralding the message of the kingdom and revealing the power of the kingdom. Opposition begins in chapter 11 of Matthew. And it's in chapters 13 through 25, Jesus continues to teach and reveal what the kingdom and the community of God is like to his disciples. From parables about the kingdom to the future of her king, of the suffering servant and the ruling judge. And then we have this climax, the climax literally of all of history in 26 and 27. The moment that no one expected, the moment that seemed to be defeat for Jesus was actually defeat for the kingdom of darkness. Defeat for the prince of the power of the air. It was victory for the king of the kingdom that cannot be shaken in his crucifixion. It seemed to be the weakest and most humble moment. And even the disciples, as they saw this event happening before them, seems as if they had no idea what was taking place. They didn't fully understand what was happening until after his resurrection. When these things became clear to him, to them, as what Jesus did on their behalf. And here we find us in our text today, in Matthew 28, we find a disheartened band of disciples, having deserted and denied their master, hidden in the shadows of locked rooms, all of their hopes dashed, fearful and alone. I would imagine they were asking this question What do we do now? What next? When chapter 28 begins in verse 21 with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who had come the first day of the week, that is Sunday, to the tomb to see the grave and to grieve over their Savior, Jesus. 
For they were confused, distraught, and broken over all that had taken place with his crucifixion. But instead of seeing a dead body, what do they see? They see an angel of the living God. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 28, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. And the angel gives them instructions to tell the disciples this news and to go to Galilee where Jesus would meet them. And in verse 9, they they run away both in fear and in joy. And it's Jesus who actually meets them there to comfort them and to remind them of these instructions from the angel. What What do the two Marys do? They worship Jesus. And these two women bring this news to the ears of the disciples Definitely to the eleven, but as Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 15, possibly 500 more. It says there are 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 16, a fearful yet joyous band of disciples go to meet Jesus at this mountain in which he's directed them to go in Galilee. And in verse 17, they find Jesus there alive. Seeing him, how do they respond? It says in verse 17, it says, they worshiped. Some doubt it. Most commentators believe that those who doubted are referring to those who were not the eleven. Others perhaps. Perhaps there were more than just the eleven. We know that the eleven were there, but perhaps some of this 500 that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 were also there. The text doesn't explicitly say, so we don't know. But those who had really been with Jesus, who had been transformed by Jesus, they worshipped. They worshipped. They were face to face now with the Messiah King, the King who conquered, who reigned even over death itself, God in the flesh. Many of these men knew this was God before them, so they worshipped. Which leads us to the the first truth, the first point here. The person of Christ compels us, compels us to make disciples. Disciples. The very reality of who Jesus is and what he has done is great encouragement for us. It compels us to proclaim this good news and to instruct others about who he is and what he's done. If you remember in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, there are these these two blind men that are following after Jesus. And what are they saying? They're crying out to Jesus saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus turns to them and he looks at them. He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And he touches their eyes, and he opens their eyes, and he tells them, and he warns them, don't tell anyone what I've done to you. But what does it say? The scriptures say these men went away, and they spread his fame throughout all the district. You see, when we have an encounter with the God of the universe, we come away changed, and we are not able to hold it in. We're not able to keep this quiet. So the question we should ask ourselves is, have we really met the Messiah? Do you know him? Remember when Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? Some of them answered. They said, some say Elijah, some say the prophet. But Jesus turned the question slightly and he looked at them, but who do you say that I am? And that beautiful response, the famous response we hear from Peter You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so my question again for you is, 
Do you know the Son of the living God? Well, let me tell you about Him. Colossians 1.15 says this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the person of Christ. This is why they worshipped Him when they met Him on the hill there at Galilee. Jesus died on the cross to make peace for us with God. We were enemies of God, rebels, separated from Him by our sin. Just as some of the verses we read this morning in the catechism. We deserve the wrath of God, eternal punishment in hell. Even our good works, they're nothing. They add no benefit, no credit to our account. But Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on the cross. It's Philippians 2. And he became our substitute and took the wrath of God that we deserved. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. And now in Christ we are justified. Made it. Peace with God. The sentence is cleared. The punishment is paid in full. This is the good news of the gospel. This is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done And if you know it, you ought to be saying to yourself with Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Or as Jeremiah says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in. It's the person and the work of Christ that compels us to make disciples. Who he is and what he's done makes all the difference. Look back with me at verse 16. Excuse me, my page is flipped around here. <laughs> well, you don't carry small Bibles into the pulpit. Um So back to verse 16 and 17. Here, his disciples are on the hill in Galilee, staring into the face of their king, Messiah, the glorified one, both fearful and joyful. It says some worshipped, yet some doubted. All were likely wondering, what's next? Verse 18 tells us, Jesus begins to speak. All authority, he says, in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. What does that verse mean? Well, first notice that this authority has been given to Jesus. The illusion here is that it was given to him by his Father, which points us again to Jesus' divinity and to Jesus' sonship. He is the Son of God. He has received this inheritance from his Father. 
Second thing to notice in verse 18 is, is authority. What, what is authority? Well, authority is reign. It's power. It's control. Authority over what? He says over heaven and earth. Literally, Jesus is saying, I have authority over all things. All things seen and unseen, above and below, near and far. I mean, Psalm 2 speaks of this authority that the Son will have, God's anointed. It says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Them being the kings and kingdoms of the earth. It goes on. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's Psalm chapter 2. What does he mean by authority? All are his. Everything is under his power. Everything under his rule. Everything under his control. Every spirit, every ruler, every power only can do Jesus' bidding. Only can do what he says can do. Which leads us to our second point. The power of Christ literally emboldens us to make disciples. First, it's the person of Christ that, that compels us to make disciples. Second, it's the power of Christ that emboldens us to prioritize this task of making disciples. And the fact that he holds all authority should take away all fear, all anxiety, all concern that you might have in your own heart about making disciples. Listen to this testimony from a pastor in Romania. His name is Joseph Thiessen. He writes a testimony about recounting his persecution when he was in um, he was being interrogated by, by six police officers. He says, During an early interrogation, I had told an officer who was threatening to kill me, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here is how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has the tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen to this again, this man, to what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in the supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. One, uh, another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told me, or told him, we know that Mr. Thiessen would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remember for how many years I was afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted so badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity, but now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me that they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Pastor Joseph knew the authority and power of Christ. And it emboldened him to proclaim the gospel. It emboldened him to make disciple-making his priority. It's the power of Christ that emboldens us to make disciples. Look again with me at verse 18. 
Here we have the disciples staring into the face of the king. And Jesus declares to them, first of all, his authority to embolden them. And second, verse 19, he answers that lingering question. What next? What do we do? Well, here's what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Our third principle. Third truth from this text. It's the prescription of Christ that commands us to make disciples. It's the prescription of Christ that commands us to make disciples. The person of Christ compels us. The power and authority of Christ emboldens us. Jesus himself prescribes that we make disciples. We often read this text and people first hear go, don't we? We think, well, Jesus has commanded us to go. The answer is yes and no. That's not necessarily the command here. Go is actually an infinitive in the text. I could read it, you, you could read it and translate it more like this. As you go, as you go about your business, as you do your work, as you live your life, keep this one priority in mind. What's the imperative? The one command in this text is make disciples. Make disciples is what Jesus tells his disciples to do. This is the task, this is the priority that Jesus is giving to his disciples from the time of his first coming to his second return. This should be at the top of your to-do list. This should be the thing that you hang your hat on here. The last thing that our Savior says to his church before he ascends into heaven. Take heed. This is not just for missionaries. It's not just for people called into ministry. This is for you. It's for each of us right here. Notice also for for who he says to make disciples of. He says to of all nations. What does that mean? All the Gentiles or all the ethnic groups of the world. The Greek word literally, it sounds like ethne. It's literally the word that we get in English that we use ethnic if that's not clear, because there's been some debate over what ethne means, Revelation 7-9 makes it abundantly clear what that means. It's John says, writing in the vision of Revelation, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So who's the ethne here? It's every tribe and every people in every language, nation. Think about it this way. There are about 17,442 ethnolinguistic people groups in the world today. That's how Joshua Project defines it. If you consider all of the boundaries and borders of geopolitical states that might separate people even of the same language and same ethnicity, 17,442. Of those 17,000, 7,413 people groups are unreached. What that means is less than 2% of those ethnic groups have come to know Christ, to believe on Christ of those 7,413, less than 2% of each one of them. Today we have 7.8 billion people in this world. Of that 7.8 billion people, that means 42.5% of them are unreached. 3.2 billion people in the world are lost in their sin. Having no hope of, no gospel witness, they're under the wrath of God, they'll go to hell 
suffering eternal punishment separated from God forever. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear unless someone is preaching? Romans 10.14 And here it is. Jesus commands these 11 men. Maybe more were there. We know that the 11 were there. Despite the magnitude of this task, absolutely overwhelming task that lay before them. But yet it's the person of Christ that compels them. The power of Christ that emboldens us in the command, the prescription of Christ. We must make disciples. So what does the phrase then mean? What does it mean, make disciples? We, we throw that around, but we don't often define it. Well, the text gives us some understanding. There's two participles that follow. Baptizing and teaching, which helps us to understand what it means to make disciples. Baptize in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that He has commanded us. That is what the disciples did. If you look at their lives and if you follow through the rest of the New Testament after this point, the disciples, they went out proclaiming the good news, baptizing those who believed, gathering them into churches, and teaching them all that Christ had commanded them. They did exactly what Jesus demonstrated and taught them in their lives with him. Baptism, what is that? It is symbolic of the believer's faith in Christ. With Christ, dying with Christ, now rising from the dead with Christ as a new person with Jesus. It's a public identification with Christ and his church. What about teaching? Well, it's more than just a set of some basic lessons. Sometimes we think about our discipleship study as six or ten basic lessons to to be discipled, and then after that you're discipled. This is not just an information download, but it's life on life. It's side by side. It's face to face. It's instruction helping others know the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. This is not just growing in knowledge. It is that at its basic level, but it's more than just knowledge. It's knowledge to be obeyed. It's knowledge to be worked out as it affects the heart and the mind and the will and the affections and the relationships of each and every one of us. It's holistic. The whole Christ for the whole man. This is what teaching is about. Together these things, baptizing and teaching, help us to understand what it means to make disciples. So look down again at verse 20. Jesus leaves them with this great promise. He does not send them alone. We can take heart in verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Which leads us to our fourth point. It's the presence of Christ that encourages us to make disciples. Christ's presence with us is the most tender promise that we have in all of this. He He helps us to prioritize and obey His commands. How is it that Jesus is with us if He ascends into heaven right after this? How is He going to remain with them? If you remember in in John chapter 16, Jesus tells them. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. 
And again, if you back up a little bit in John verse, or chapter 14, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Jesus sent his Spirit to dwell in and with us, to be with us. He is our seal and proof of our adoption in Christ. He is equipping us for the work of ministry. He is transforming us into the likeness of Christ day by day. Jesus didn't leave us as orphans, but as children of God. And it's the Spirit in us that helps cry, Abba, Father. He is with us, and it is His presence that encourages us to make disciples. When you're you're speaking about the truth of Christ and people are mocking you, or when you're trying to disciple someone and you're just in a relational mess. When we're overwhelmed by life and the struggle, it is to try to prioritize this very command. Remember that Jesus is with you. He will help you as you seek to make disciples. Disciple making must be our priority. Because of who He is, the person of Christ because of what he possesses, the power and authority of Christ, because of what he commands, the prescription of Christ, and because of where he is, the presence of Christ with us. Those are four things, four truths that I hope encourage you, that that compel you and push you forward and embolden you and encourage you to make disciples. Now there are a few implications as we think about what this text is saying to us, as we see these four points here. Two implications I want to share with you, just some practical things to help us think about making disciples. The first implication is this. Not being intentional to make disciples is disobedience and sin. We don't have an excuse. I don't want to say that in a, in a harsh way. I, I hope that that doesn't discourage you. Jesus explicitly gives this command to his disciples to the church, right here in Matthew 28, 19. As we have already established, these are his last words. These are weighty words, words that should be a priority for these disciples, and and they were, as we can see in their lives, and they should be for us. To not be intentional in thinking about how you are making disciples, who you are reaching to make disciples, and what you are teaching or going to do, both personally and corporately, to simply sin, whether it's by omission or commission, to not do this is to live in sin. But that doesn't mean there's no hope for us. Because of Jesus, we have the ability to make disciples. Because of his death and resurrection and our union with him by faith, Jesus enables us to make disciples. It's all because of him. It's all of grace that we can make disciples. Remember what he says in Ephesians 2, before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Christ for this good work. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why you've been saved. This is exactly what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. 
Let me turn to it just for a second. Second Corinthians five fourteen. It says, "For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion: if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. That those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and for them was raised." We have a new life, new purpose in Christ. It's the gospel at work in you. God at work in and through you for His glory to do this very thing. If you walk by faith in Christ and trust in His grace that's sufficient in the midst of your weakness, you won't fail at this. Jesus is at work through you. He won't fail at this. If you have been, haven't been intentionally making disciples in your walk with Christ, only you can assess as to why that is. Whether it's fear of others or fear of your lack of training or distraction or prioritizing other things over this or simply laziness, I don't know. You know the answer to that. But take heart. Remember the four truths that we just spoke about in Matthew 28. Go back to that to encourage you to be remembered, to, to, to remember these things. It is these truths about Jesus that compel us to speak. They embolden us while speaking and encourage us to speak about Christ because of the person of Christ, the power of Christ, and the presence of Christ with us. Second implication. We have everything that we need in Christ, His Word, and His church to make disciples. Everything. You don't lack in any way to begin making disciples. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit and the presence of God with you, and the Spirit gives us special feeling to do the work of ministry. Think about it this way. You have Bibles, multiple translations in your language accessible to you. Many of you have multiple Bibles, multiple translations in your house right now. If you don't understand the Greek and the Hebrew, you have trusted godly faithful scholars doing translation from the original Greek and Hebrew that you can use to learn the Word of God for yourself and to teach the Word of God to others. You're also part of a faithful church here. A church that I know desires to make disciples. That I know desires to see the gospel proclaimed right here in your area. Each one of you have various gifts in this church that's given to you by Jesus to help you in this very task. To speak the truth in love to one another. To be built up into Christ until you attain to the fullness and stature of Christ. This is what Ephesians 4 tells us, you really have no excuse to not make disciples. So let's make it simple. What do we need to do today? What does that look like for us to begin right now? Let's start by asking these four questions. First, who is intentionally discipling me? Who is intentionally discipling me? If you are a man, maybe find an older man, not necessarily older in age, but mature, older in faith that can walk with you. If you're a woman, find an older and mature woman in faith to disciple you. They're not going to ask you. Go ask them. Pursue them. Spend time with one another watching their lives, how they pursue God in prayer, in the study of His Word, in evangelism. Watch how they love their spouses. Watch how they instruct their children. Learn what it means to fight sin, to walk in holiness, and to be above reproach in your work by examining their lives as they 
lead you, as they disciple you, as you spend time together, side by side, life on life. Pick a book of the Bible to read together. Or simply apply the sermons that you're hearing here every Sunday to your life and work them out intentionally together and pray. Pray for one another. And make a plan to be sharing the gospel together. This isn't complicated. It's real simple. It's as simple as that. Think about doing those few things and you're moving into making disciples. Second question. Who are you intentionally discipling? So the first question is who is discipling you? Second question is who are you intentionally discipling? If you're married, husbands at the very least, you should be pouring into your wives. If you have children, you should be discipling your children. Your kids, if they're not born again, don't think of evangelism and discipleship in this case as two very distinct and separate things. They really aren't. We need the gospel just as much before Christ as we need the gospel in Christ. Constantly be reminded of and worked out in our very lives. Pursue finding someone outside of your immediate family, someone in your church that you can be pouring into and investing in spiritually. Ask them if they would like to do some of these things that we mentioned with you. Remember, this could be mutual. You're not the master here. Jesus is the master. We're following him together, and together we want to become like Christ. You don't want people to become like you. I don't want people to become like me. I want to push each other towards Jesus. So number three, third question to ask yourself is who is doing this beside you? So who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? Who's doing this beside you? If you remember throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels and in Acts, anytime the disciples were sent out, they were sent out in pairs. Luke chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, the 70 and the 72, always in pairs. In Acts, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas went out together, or Paul and Silas later. It was always in groups. Paul was never alone. This should be the, the, the person either you are discipling or who is discipling you. Go together. Go together to share the gospel. Go together to be discipling others. It's a process in which is more caught than it is taught. So it needs to be exemplified. It needs to be modeled. Don't do it alone. And number four, who are you seeking to reach with the gospel? Who are you seeking to reach with the gospel? Who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? Who's walking beside you in the midst of this? And who are you seeking to reach with the gospel? Always have the one or two or five or ten. It depends on your capacity. It doesn't matter the numbers. Don't think about the numbers. Don't let that scare you. But find somebody that you're intentionally engaging with the gospel. Somebody that's going to be your next disciple by God's grace. You can make disciples. You have everything that you need in Christ. The person of Christ, the authority of Christ, the, the presence of Christ with us. You have his word. You have the body of Christ right here to help you, to work with you, to walk along beside of you. So go then. Make disciples of all people, bringing them into membership of this church the proclamation of the gospel to the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that He has commanded you right here in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we know our weakness. We know our constant distraction. 
that there's many things competing for our priorities. But Lord, we ask that you today would stir us up, that your spirit would stir us up to be disciple makers as you've called us to in Christ, that the new life that we live, that we no longer live for ourselves as we did in our old lives, that we would live for you, just as we sang, but that we live for your glory. And as we do that, we would make it a priority to make disciples of all peoples, of our neighbors, of our families, people at work. Lord, give us grace and help today because we can't do this alone. Remind us of your presence with us. Remind us of your work in person, Lord Jesus, that compels us and the authority that you have in this very command that you've given us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.